From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that likes them apples. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Gravity. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. I'm feeling a little weighed down by the semester. I hear you. It's almost like gravity is, I don't know. I was going to do like a Back to the Future reference. You know, Michael J. Fox's character kept saying like, man, this is heavy. And then uh, Christopher (laughs) Lloyd was like, gravity gravity has nothing to do with it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Heavy kind of fell out of favor as an idiom. Yeah, it's it's a shame. We should try to bring it back. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we'll start with this podcast. Definitely very heavy today. So (laughs) we recently had an episode talking about the heliocentric model. Uh Uh-huh. And two things came out of that. So for one, we talked a lot more about Isaac Newton and what he did. And I had to cut quite a bit of that out just for time purposes. But then also a few people were asking questions of like, yeah, but what is gravity? And so mm-hmm. then that kind of led to our topic today. Okay. I was probably one of those people who was like, yeah, but what is it? Well, yeah. So this, so if you want to know what is it, this is not going to be a very satisfying episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. I mean, so often in science, we are thinking about things like, hey, I noticed this one thing. What causes that? What led to that? And then uh-huh. then you figure out like, oh, okay, it was this other thing. You know, what led to A? Well, B did that. Mm-hmm. And oh, well, what causes B? Well, C did this thing to make B happen, which makes A happen. And then, and that's often how science works, right? So it's turtles all the way down. Exactly. But every once in a while, there are certain questions that are just fundamental. And it's just like, no, I don't know. I can tell you the properties of this. I can tell you that this is a thing. I just, I can't break it down any more than this is a fundamental piece, right? And in the realm of physics, there are four fundamental pieces that is just like, okay, this is the best we can do. I feel and, like, hang on, I, I know you're going to list them off, but I, I feel like this is the, the physicist's way of saying no questions. We don't have time for questions at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Hit me with a Fantastic Four. Oh, the Fantastic Four. Okay, so gravity, electromagnetism, Uh the strong force, and the weak force. These are the four fundamental forces of nature. So gravity is what we're going to talk about today. Electromagnetism. What about procrastination? Is that not on there? Seems like Um, that should be on the list. I think that's the weak force. Okay. (laughs) It's an outcome of the weak force. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So electromagnetism, it used to be two separate forces. And now we we know more about them and realize that they're sort of two sides of a coin of electricity and magnetism. Uh But they are actually responsible for, I would say they're more responsible for our daily lives than any of the other three forces. Because yes, okay, so we're recording and using electrons and so forth right now Mm -hmm. uh, on our computers. That's one form of it. But also we can see each other because light is a form of electromagnetic waves. Mm. But also every atom in our body is held together by, you know, all the atoms are held together through electromagnetic forces. That's what keeps an atom together. That's what keeps electrons orbiting around the nucleus. That's what keeps different atoms being connected to each other to make chemical bonds and and all that sort of thing. All of that is electromagnetism. All right, you convinced me. At first I was like, well, wait a minute. I mean... When I rub my feet across the carpet and get the little shock when I touch a door handle, that doesn't happen that often. Yeah. But yeah, okay. If it's responsible for chemical bonds, then I'm convinced. Yeah. All right. And the thing about electromagnetism is that that force, like all these forces, actually, the closer you are to them, the stronger the force is. And so that's why, for instance, if you have two magnets, if you try to put like two North Poles together, it's really easy when you're far away and then you know, your hands always slip when you Mm. get really, really close to them. And so electromagnetism would make you think like, okay, well, I know that positive charges attract negative charges. So like a proton and an electron, but that two positive charges should repel each other. 
like two protons. And so then sure. that's true. And so an atom that has however many protons, you know, carbon has six protons and six neutrons in its nucleus. How does it keep those six protons together? Because they're all repelled from each other by electromagnetism. Right. It turns out there's this force called the strong force. And it's called the strong force because it's stronger than electromagnetism, about 100 times stronger when you're looking okay. at inside of an atom. But then it falls off very, very quickly after that. Like if you get more distant than about the size of an atom of the nucleus, really, then it basically uh, falls off to zero. But so it's extremely local. Yeah. But that's called the strong force. It's what holds the nucleus together. Okay. I'm guessing that was discovered after gravity and electromagnetism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then there's something called the weak force, uh, which is responsible for... Um... The weekends. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it is almost the weekend for us. Yeah. For Sorry, our listeners, the it's the beginning of the week, though. So. Oh, right. Right, right, right. Sorry. I was inconsiderate. <laughs> so we keep getting smaller and smaller. We're talking about you know gravity, which is normally like a lot of mass together that forms gravity electromagnetism which holds atoms together for like chemical bonds strong force which holds the nucleus together mm. but the nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons mm. and protons and neutrons are made up of things smaller called quarks okay and so quarks are what make up protons and neutrons turns out they can switch sides they can flip and Effectively, what that will do is turn a proton into a neutron. Mm. Now, this is important for a lot of things to happen. So for fusion in the sun, we have to have that ability to turn protons into neutrons and so forth. That's very important. And mm. so therefore, that means basically it's ultimately important for us because we would not be around if fusion did not happen in different stars and so forth. Mm. So it is important, but it's also it's also given a name called the weak force, which kind of implies its importance as well. It's just, eh. Sure, whatever. <laughs> sort of like a consolation prize. Yeah. But yeah. it's not. It's very important. Okay. Or what? what is this grand unified theory I've heard about? Electricity and magnetism used to be thought of as two separate forces that we now call electromagnetism. And since that time, some theoretical physicists have been working hard trying to figure out how can we combine more of the forces together? Are they hmm. like electricity and magnetism? Are they really just the same thing, just coming from slightly different perspectives? And my understanding is that there's been a lot of work for electromagnetism and the strong and the weak, but gravity so far has remained separate. They cannot make them all jibe together. But that is something that would be exciting and people are working on that. But in order to get to that, let's talk about gravity. Isaac Newton was a theoretical physicist. He was interested really a lot in light. But he also did some big models that are sort of foundational to all of physics that's led since then. Anybody who's taken intro physics knows that he made the laws of motion. Hmm. Do you know what the laws of motion are? I don't want to put you on the spot. Mm, I mean, is it things like inertia? Yeah, yeah. Like an object at rest will stay at rest. An object in motion will stay in motion. Okay. Unless acted on by a force. Uh-huh. The second law is basically just f equals ma force equals mass times acceleration okay yes sorry i've been talking to our intro students and that's that's the shorthand you just say that and then uh -huh. like, oh right okay and then <laughs> the last one is often said as for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction hmm. if you're on a boat or something and you jump onto the shore then the boat will go backwards because you're trying to push forwards from it you know okay and these were all very important because at the time that isaac newton was around people assumed that the natural state of motion was to not move. Mm. And, and so if you roll a ball or something like that, eventually the ball will just stop rolling. But we now would attribute that to the fact that there's friction on the ground and that uh -huh. it's interacting with the ground and then that's causing it to stop. Mm -hmm. And that's important for our discussion and leading to gravity, in, in fact, because if it is true that the natural state of everything is just to 
be still, then why would the moon still be orbiting around us? Why would we be orbiting around the sun? Why would the sun be orbiting around a supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way galaxy, right? Well, doesn't in the inertia description that you just, the example that you just gave of a ball rolling, Mm -hmm. and so it'll tend to remain at rest or remain in motion unless acted on, the acted on part of that sort of seems like it would account for the friction, right? So, okay. So, I mean, it it seems like it still holds even if a ball rolls and then eventually comes to rest. Right. But so in his time before Newton, they would have said that it came to rest because we all just want to sit down and stop at some point. I see. I see. Okay. Okay. And he was saying, no, there are other forces acting on it to make it stop. I see. So he's the one who said, let's think about friction, for instance. Okay. And that's what's going to make it stop. And the reason that the moon can still orbit around us is that it's not experiencing a lot of friction as it's orbiting around us. So this all then led to what's called his universal theory of gravity. Mm. And this is going to be terrible for podcasting because it's an equation and it's great to write it down, but then uh, people driving yeah. to work. Yeah, you... find a piece of paper and a pen, <laughs> pull over to the side. You're going to need to take some notes here. Yeah, basically he found that gravity depends on really three things. The mass of one object times the mass of the object it's being attracted to uh-huh. and divided by the distance between the two objects squared. Okay, the square of the distance. The square of the distance. Okay. So it's just those three things. And so... That's not um, too complicated. But it is a little strange, right? That part of your attraction to me Mm. is my mass. (laughs) (laughs) If I had more mass, you'd be more attracted to me, right? That just feels weird. That's just science. It's just science. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and but it's only that, right? I mean, it's and Newton actually made this this statement of saying, "Well, I look at the moon, and I know it's there. I know it's really, really big because it's far away. But even if it were not really, really big, let's say you know his family owned an orchard, and he held up an apple, and he said, okay, if I hold an apple out about arm's length away, it looks to be about the same size as the moon. Uh-huh. But I know that the moon is much, much bigger because it's so much farther away. But let's do a thought experiment. What if the moon were actually the size of an apple? You know, what if some how we could pack, you know, like a ball of tinfoil or something like that, just crumple it up the moon into a tight little space so mm-hmm. that we're actually, so it still had the same mass, but it were just the size of an apple. So it'd be super dense. Exactly. Uh huh. And he rationalized that, no, we would have, we'd still have all the effects that we have from the moon. We would have tides. We would have, you know, this slight gravitational tug changing our orbit around the sun a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, he was able to figure out that we would still be able to sort of work backwards and say, there's got to be something like right there. I can't see anything, Mm -hmm. but it's got to be right there. And then when we look through a telescope, we might see this apple floating in space. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So it would have the same gravitational effect, but obviously not the same nightlight effect, but because it's so small. Okay. And it's, that's a little bit surprising too, right? I mean, you would expect that the shape would matter. But this is more of a mathematical argument being able to say like, okay, well, if we're some distance away from the moon, it's acting as if it's just like this point mass. It may as Uh well just be an apple. And that leads to a lot of, that's the foundation of so many physics problems where we're like, oh, well, let's just assume we have a a point mass right here. And Uh, that's why physicists like spheres so much, huh? Yeah, because it just, in many, many cases, a sphere is just as good as the complicated shapes. Okay. And so gravity, that was a big thing that he was actually proving was that it doesn't matter what the shape is, that it 
for something spherical like that, the symmetry of it makes it not matter too much. So is it the case then that for things that you are far away from, a little bit of irregularity in their shape doesn't really matter? Right. But then if you're close to it, then can a little bit of irregularity start to matter? Because I feel like I've seen maps of slight fluctuations in Earth's gravity, mm -hmm. depending on where you are. Am I just making that up? Or is that? No, that's the true thing. So is that accounted for by your, this description? What It's actually accounted for. There are two things to account with that. So one thing is that it depends where you are on the Earth. The Earth is not a perfect sphere. It's actually mm -hmm. a little squished in the middle. It kind of flares out in the middle, kind of like me. And <laughs> Is it because you're constantly rotating as well? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. And so your distance from the center of the Earth, if you're at the equator, is a little bit greater than your distance from the center of the Earth if you're at, say, the North Pole. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. You also have slight differences depending on your elevation. So like if we decide to go hiking and hike to the top of Mount Hood, we would weigh a little bit less than we do down at sea level. Mm. Now, the thing that's not necessarily accounted for in there is that if we happen to be walking over some area that has dense rock right below our feet, mm. right, we're going to be slightly more attracted to that because there's just more mass locally. I see. And so, yes, there are some subtle differences that you'd have to pay attention to. But okay. But it is kind of interesting that we can generally treat things as like, you know, if we're thinking here on Earth, if I drop something, it just falls down. But that's effectively just heading towards the center of the Earth, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's in that direction. Whatever we say down is, is basically just pointing towards the center of the Earth. If we're up in an airplane, down is still pointing to the center of the Earth. If we're in a space station or something like that, basically it's the center of the Earth that we're attracted to, not Mount Hood. Mm -hmm. And so this center of mass thing, that operates regardless of the shape of the object. Within, within reason, yeah. I mean, okay. if we had, for the most part, the Earth is a nice sphere. So, uh -huh. and distance also matters though as well, because when we were talking about the heliocentric theory, mm. that episode a few episodes back, one of the issues that people had with it was thinking like, well, if we're orbiting around the sun, why don't we fall off? Why don't we fall off the Earth and just land in, into the sun? But this distance piece also plays a role in that because we're much closer to the Earth than we are to the sun. And so even though, yes, the pull of the sun is very, very strong, it is so far away that respectively, we care much more about the gravitational pull of the Earth than we do of the sun because we're so much closer to it. Uh-huh. Since Newton talked about tidal forces, I think that's a fun thing to also mention here briefly. We've talked about this a couple of times, but tidal forces are how the difference in distances matter as well. That, for instance, the front one side of the Earth facing the moon is going to be more attracted to the moon than the back side of the Earth would be. Mm, okay, because of the distance squared issue. Yeah, and because it is the distance squared, then that means that it's a noticeable effect. And mm -hmm. the way we notice it here on Earth is that the tides, and this is called the tidal force because of that, that basically when the oceans are pointing in the direction of the moon, then they get tugged up just a little bit. So they rise up a few feet or so, depending on where you are. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in reverse when they're pointed directly away from the moon. I call it the Wiley Coyote effect, but it's basically they're left behind. They're not as attracted to the, the moon. And so they're, they're just kind of floating off a little bit more. And so okay. we have two tides per day because the, the earth is rotating underneath where the moon is. 
And so twice a day, we have a point where we're facing, once a day, we're facing the moon directly, and once a day, we're facing directly away. And so we have two high tides because of that. And so the highest high tide is the one that is facing towards the moon. Correct. And so basically, I then I have this image of the Earth as basically this bulge of water that is always being pulled up towards the moon. Mm-hmm. And then the land mass is just sort of rotating inside that bulge of water. Yeah, that's my cartoon as well. Yeah. And then because we are on the landmass, that's our point of reference. And so to us, it, it, it feels like the tides are coming in and out. But really, it's because the land we're standing on is passing under the bulge. Yeah. And it turns out we have a tidal force from the sun as well. It's just that the sun is so much farther away that the difference between one side of the earth and the other side is a little bit weaker than it is from the moon. Because the moon being close to us means that it makes more of an effect if we're moving farther away from it. Mm -hmm. But even with that, the sun's tidal force is only about a third of the moon. Mm. So it's still important. They still matter. Yeah. Okay. And actually, that's why the maximum of the tides changes from day to day. Like you can mm-hmm. look on tide charts and so forth and see like, oh, well, when is high tide and what time and all this stuff? It's because it depends where the moon is relative to the sun. That when we have what's called a new moon, which is when the moon and the sun are in the same part of the sky, then they have a really strong tidal force because they're both working together. Ah, uh, they're tight. The ocean's being pulled in the same direction by both of them. Yeah. But if we have a mid phase, a quarter moon or something like that, that means the moon is 90 degrees, is pulling in 90 degrees from where the sun is pulling. So they're kind of fighting each other in that case. Okay. And so the tides tend to be a little bit weaker at that point. So I've heard of king tides and neap tides. Is that accounted for by this combined effect? So they will only occur when there's a new moon. Yes. So the king tides. Yeah, because that is when the maximum tides are. Okay. But it also has to do with where the moon is relative to Earth. Because so the moon is not orbiting us in a perfect circle. Mm. So sometimes it's a little bit closer, sometimes it's farther away. And so, you know, we just had a solar eclipse here, you know, not too long ago, where it was called an annular eclipse, because the moon blocked the sun, but the moon was farther away at that time. So it was only, it left a ring behind, basically. It it didn't block the sun entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are other times when the moon is really, really close. And it's those times that the newscasters will call it a super moon, or they have all these exciting names for Mm -hmm. the fact that it's just incrementally larger in the sky than it normally is. But when we have one of those, then the moon is actually a little bit closer to the Earth. And so its tidal forces are even more dramatic than they would normally be. Okay. And so when you have those going on, people will call it a a king tide, for instance, just to demonstrate like, okay, this is really more dramatic tides than we normally have. So Okay. Yeah, cool. I feel like I've also heard of tidal forces operating elsewhere in the solar system, like Jupiter pulling on its moons and Uh the sun pulling on Mercury. Yeah. So in what way are those similar to what we're experiencing on Earth? Because in that case, we're not talking about a bulge of water being attracted up. How should I understand those? Well, I mean, Jupiter has a a moon called Io. Uh Uh-huh. Io. And in that case, it actually is mostly water. But Mm. it is that moon is actually it has a very eccentric orbit, meaning that it's sometimes really close to Jupiter and sometimes really far away. And it's such a strong effect there that the tidal forces actually matter a great deal to EO. It Mm. will, when it's really, really close to Jupiter, elongate the moon quite a bit. Oh, really? Yeah. So the entire moon will like squish out. And then when it gets farther away in its orbit, it kind of bounces back to the sphere. And then Mm. it comes in close and it squishes out again. And, you know, moving that much material like that actually heats up the moon of EO quite a bit. Hmm. And so it's 
at a point then that it still has volcanic eruptions and things like that just because all of this movement on a global scale huh. all okay. because of the tidal forces uh, so and, that's sort and, of like that scene in interstellar where they've got that huge tide on that planet yeah, yeah that was a good scene and then tidal forces also play an important role in the sense that sometimes you can get planets to be lopsided and orbit in only a very particular way. So, for instance, our moon only faces us one way, and that's because mm. of tidal forces. Long, long ago, the tidal forces made its orbit match its rotation as it's going around the Earth. So we only ever see the one side of the moon. We never mm -hmm. see the backside of it. But the same thing is currently happening to Mercury. Mercury's rotation is slowing down to match its orbit. Mm -hmm. And there are several moons in the solar system that are doing that with their respective planets, mm -hmm. uh, including Pluto and its largest moon, Charon. Mm. They're both actually facing each other all the time. Hmm. And so are those two rotating around kind of like their combined center of mass? Yeah, but I mean, okay. that's what everything's doing too, right? I mean, we're doing that with our moon. It's just that our center of mass is, is still located within the Earth. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, it's sort of like if you wanted to swing your kids around in a circle, you know, you grab their arms and just spun them in a circle. Your little one, you don't have to lean back very much, but your bigger one now, you probably have to... <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's how distance plays a role in Newton's conception of gravity there. But so the mass also plays a big role. I mean, we already talked about how it's the product of the two masses together, mm -hmm. that it is how much mass of one object is times the mass of the other object. But it does have an interesting question there, which a lot of students will ask me about of like, well, hold on, light though, light doesn't, photons don't have mass, right? How does gravity affect that? Yeah. It, but it is affected still. Yes. Right. And I, I think I even, I might've asked you this recently. It was sort of like, no dummy. That's how Newton thought about it. <laughs> but from Einstein, we know that Newton's conception, while the math works, at least at large scales, his conception of how it all actually works is not completely accurate. So we need to have more of an Einsteinian view of the universe, which I always forget. Yeah. yeah, well, even with Newtonian mechanics, you can add some term in there for light. Mm. And it's hard to find real derivations of this. I actually just recently was trying to look this up and it's hard to find, but Newton cared about light. And so Newton did, in fact, predict that light would also bend. He was a big, strong proponent for light being a, a particle anyway. So he was saying like, yeah, just like any other object, it's a particle that will just bend. So he had no idea what the mass of light was, but he, he had predictions about it based on gravity and so forth. And so then people had to come up with ways to you know, say, well, all right, so light, sure, it doesn't have mass, but it does have some property that's still blah, whatever. <laughs> but it doesn't totally work out. I mean, so you can kind of kludge your model to make light be part of it, which is what for a long time people were doing. Okay. But you're right that Einstein then came along and he was like, well, let's think about things a little bit differently. And so what Einstein did really well, he had several huge, huge predictions that came from his work. In fact, in 1905, he had like five papers that were all hugely influential in science going forward. Mm -hmm. One of them was special theory of relativity, the equals MC squared, all that stuff. One of them was talking about is light a particle or a wave. And that's actually what he got a Nobel Prize for was that paper. And then he had three more. One was like Brownian motion and some other things. But but let's talk about his special theory of relativity a little bit. Yeah. So he spent some time really thinking about like, okay, so normal mechanics and so forth, we know how to add up what's going on with, okay, you know, if I'm on a train and you're on a different train and what would we see and how would we react and all this other stuff. But 
he was really interested in asking questions of like, well, what happens if we go really, really fast? Mm. How does that affect different things? And so what he called the special theory of relativity was to say, all right, what if we are moving at a constant speed going really, really fast? How does what we perceive be different from what other people would perceive? And you get some weird answers and, and it's very hard to think through with just that piece of it. But then he came back. It took him another, I think, 10 years to write his general theory of relativity. Hmm. And the reason he that so the reason he called his first one the special theory was because he was only considering what happens if you're traveling without forces acting on you. So talking about Newton, right, you can move in a straight line. You've got inertia. You're moving in a straight line unless a force acts on you. Okay. And then Einstein for the general theory was like, all right, what if there is acceleration? What if something is acting on you? And the biggest thing to act on you is gravity. And so then his general theory is really answering the question about gravity for the most part. Hmm. And so maybe you've heard of this idea of space time. Yes, I have heard of space time as, I don't know, some sort of four dimensional construct something yeah. like that and they're they're all related to each other but it is a difficult thing to wrap my little three-dimensional brain around yeah i mean our normal everyday life is dealing in three dimensions we've got uh -huh. you know x y and z or up yep. down forward back whatever and it's only if we're doing extreme things extreme that time really plays much of a role and so so when he was doing his special theory of relativity he came up with some ideas of how time would change depending on how fast things are moving that mm -hmm. if you're moving really really fast like near the speed of light then you will experience time differently than i would and again this is very hard to to kind of grasp and to kind of really feel like you feel good about it but basically time can change if you're moving at high speeds i don't know man i feel like i experience time differently than my kids do every morning when we're trying to get out of the house so because you're moving fast and they're moving slow or yeah ah put that in your model einstein <laughs> Actually, he did. He he had some quip about like, if you're with a beautiful woman, then time slows down or something like that. Or I, I forget uh, what it was. But it turns out if you're moving really fast, then time becomes part of an issue. And you have to pay attention to how space and time interact with each other in those cases. Mm -hmm. And so for the most part, in our daily lives, we don't have to pay attention to that. But if you are dealing with things that objects are moving very fast, such as light, then you have to pay attention to that. And as a result, that also means that gravity plays a big role here as well. So I feel like I have heard discussions about how black holes, because of their extreme mass, have these weird effects on space and time as well. Mm -hmm. And so like, I feel like I've heard somebody say that that the center of a black hole is the end of time. Oh, is that, that like exciting. a yeah? So, I mean, it it was one of those sort of like popular physics kind of mm. kind of speakers. I think they were just trying to make the point though that they're so massive that they bend space and time. Yeah. So it's a hard thing to grasp if we're talking about three dimensions plus this extra fourth. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine instead thinking about just two dimensions, basically. Okay. You know, let's say we had a trampoline in our backyard. Okay. Which I never did growing up, but... Me neither. And then imagine, you know, we put a bowling ball in the center of the, the trampoline, right? Mm -hmm. The bowling ball is going to cause the entire trampoline to kind of bend downward a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you have sort of a dip in the middle. Mm -hmm. And if you were to roll a ball anywhere near that bowling ball, the path of that ball would kind of curve around where the, the bowling ball is because of that dip in the, in the trampoline. And let's ignore the fact that this whole analogy to describe gravity requires using gravity. <laughs> but it, it gets our minds thinking about how massive objects can bend space around them and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so that's a different way of thinking about gravity. 
that it's it's actually space and time are bending rather than what Newton is saying is that things are just attracted to each other by their masses and so forth. And so the way we detect it is by its effect on objects moving through it. Right. Okay. And so in fact, the way that general relativity was first proven was through looking at during a solar eclipse, in fact, hmm. that there was a solar eclipse, I think in Africa someplace, and people were taking pictures to see what stars they could see from behind the sun. Mm. Because if it's dark right now and the moon blocks the sun and I there's a solar eclipse, I can see stars in the sky mm -hmm. in the middle of the day, right? Those stars, I would not be able to see until like six months later. But we know mm -hmm. exactly where those stars are, right? Because we're just going around the sun. We're orbiting around and we see the stars generally at nighttime are the ones pointed directly away from the direction of the sun. Uh -huh. But if we have a solar eclipse in the middle of the day, we can see exactly what the stars should be back there. So we know where they belong. Right. And what they found was that the starlight coming from stars, even a little bit behind the sun that we should not be able to see at all. Uh -huh that that light actually bent around the sun and they were able to take a picture of it. Huh. So like they could compare these two sets of stars, knowing like, you know, six months later, they took pictures of those same stars and could detect that from our vantage point during the solar eclipse, they shifted a little bit and were actually visible to us. Mm -hmm. They should not have been visible to us. Mm -hmm. Now, it is possible that using Newtonian mechanics, you could kind of predict something like that happening, but not to the same degree. So the people who did this experiment, they were expecting to see some effect of that. But whether it's the, the factor of two or not was what they were really looking for. I see. Okay. I, I was reading some arguments about this of what's the difference between these two ideas. And the one way to think about it is that Newton was thinking of it not intentionally. He was just looking at how things were working, that basically Newton was only considering how gravity affects space curvature, but he wasn't taking time into account at all. Hmm. And so Einstein came along and he was like, well, time also plays a role. And if you incorporate that into gravity, then you can see that space and time are both changing. And so it turns out that gave a factor of two to this whole effect. Hmm. But Einstein makes that prediction, and we see that with solar eclipses, we can see that with, uh, as you're describing, what would happen with the black hole is that basically it bends space-time so much that it's basically like a pinpoint, a single point in space that has no space whatsoever. It's just like a single spot in the universe, hmm. which is hard to kind of imagine. Like if you fell into it, then, I mean, you would be also getting shrunk down to that as well. So, yeah. But we also, if you remember, we had some interviews with some Nobel laureates recently. Yes. Um, and they talked about the same effect as well, is that they could actually measure if they move their clock from one elevation up just a few inches higher they could actually their clocks were so sensitive that they could actually tell the difference between where they were because the gravity changed just that subtle amount and that also mm -hmm. changed the time by an even more subtle amount yeah so that is a good demonstration of space-time being a real thing yeah that yeah, movement and, through space affects the time yeah they're inextricably linked and and also i mean satellites and things more dramatically have to resynchronize their clocks every once in a while because they're farther away from the center of the earth their gravity is different from our gravity here on earth and so they have to resync every once in a while and that right. is a very common thing yeah and we need our satellites to be synced up so that we're communicating appropriately right i mean so, that, it's actually yeah. a big problem i mean it's yeah. something that engineers really had to spend a lot of time working on to figure okay. that out so well i would say that i'm not entirely unsatisfied i think i just need to like with the the question of what gravity actually is mm-hmm 
and I mean, I don't know exactly what I even mean by that question. Like, am I asking you to like hold up a substance and point to it and say, you know, here's gravity or or something? Yeah. But it's clearly demonstrated by the examples you gave that we can observe its effects. Right. And sort of like the way that you might close your eyes and sort of feel around in a room and then you can get the lay of where all the walls are. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can sort of start to get a sense of the shape of it by how it affects your detection of the universe. Yeah. And right now, I guess that's what I'll have to be satisfied with. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rudy Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have questions about the universe, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.